0: Want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning? We've had a very uh, beneficial lesson. I trust all of you have, as well, have had as well, and uh, <clears throat> we've learned more about God and more about ourselves and our relationship to God. I'd like to look at, uh, or I'll be looking at Nehemiah five today. A continuation of our study of Nehemiah, and uh, the theme of this uh, study will be God's mercy towards us. Um, I'd like to be drawing from uh, Nehemiah's uh, relationship to his people <clears throat> and how he intervened for them and so forth and uh, make that connection with, with our Christ, our Lord. So let's uh, open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5 and, and read... This passage of scripture, as we recall in the in the in chapter four, the the wall was being built. They had a lot of they had a lot of pushback and so forth. And I'll maybe talk a bit about more about that after we read this chapter and are into it. But here we have the people now, and uh, there's another there's another issue, and it, it involves it involves um, Enter relationships. Just one second here. Um, so let's start reading verse one of chapter five. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren the Jews, for there were there for there were there that said, "We, our sons and our daughters, are many; therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live." Some also. There were that said we have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There are also that said we have money, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. So we have some some difficult things going on here. We have uh, mortgages because of the king's tribute, also because of the dearth. Uh, There's many sons and daughters to feed, um, which is a good thing, but there needs to be provision, right? They say, yet now our flesh is is as the flesh of our brethren. Our children as their children. So they're saying, we're the same people as our brethren are. Our children are the same as theirs. Same blood. Uh, And lo, We bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Nehemiah here, and I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, We after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. and Will I even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? Then they held their peace and found nothing to answer. Also I said, It is not good that ye do. Are ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise, and my brethren and my servants, might exact of them money and corn, I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Restore, I pray you, to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money, and of the corn, and of the wine, and of the oil, that ye exact of them. Then said they, the nobles responding, we will restore them, and we will require nothing of them, so will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them, that they should do according to the promise. Also I shook my lap and said, So God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that perform not this promise, even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen and praise the Lord, and the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year even unto the 2 and 30th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that is, 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor, but the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people, and had taken them bread and wine besides forty shekels of silver, yea, even their servants bear rule over the people. But so did I not, so did not I, because of the fear of God. Yea, also I continued the work of this wall, neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. Moreover there was that My table and a hundred and fifty of the Jews and rulers be cut beside those that came unto us from among the heathen that are about us. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox, six choice sheep, also fowls were prepared for me. and once in ten days store of all sorts of wine. Yet for all of this required not I the bread of the governor because the bondage was heavy upon the people. Think upon me, O God, for good according to all that I have done for this people." And I'll just make a few comments here about Nehemiah, the last letter. He's talking about his own, um, the way he handled himself as governor, and uh, well, just a observation. He must have been a quite wealthy man, um, and and also he was a generous man. He didn't require of, of, of the people to bring to support him like. He would have been entitled to, and he was a compassionate man. I believe uh, is is the the main thing. He he was one of his own people there, and uh, understood their need and their hardships. And for that reason, didn't feel to uh, ask them to contribute to the governorship. Um. So going back and looking again at the at chapter at verse one. There was a great cry, and already they had given up their lands, their vineyards, those things that they could use to to come back and contribute to to pay off their debt or maintain their debts, were given up, and now they were down to having't even given their daughters, and I think if I'm reading into this correctly. They were faced with having to give up their sons too. And they were like, this is enough. We can't do any more. And so this great cry came up. And again, I want to impress on our minds. Remember, these people have been through the press, if you might say already. And now it seems like the nobles were hanging them out to dry. Uh, Seventy years of captivity, living in a foreign land, or else being refugees or survivors in their own land. They're refugees either way. The long journey back from Babylon, many, many, many miles, and uh, that had undoubtedly taken its toll on them physically, mentally, and financially. Um, Coming back, things were not the same. There was not a welcome mat on their front doors. There was not a warm house to come into. You know, when we go on a trip, the hardest thing for me to do is get my wife out the door. I mean to actually get her out from the house to the vehicle, you know, because uh, and this is all great, you know, but it gets on my nerves sometimes, as you can tell, because the house has to be, you know, really, really clean. But then I enjoy it a lot when we get home. I mean, it's like well, it's worth taking a trip just for that to come home, and our house is usually clean. But you know, just come into, you come back, and there's such a welcome there. Um, I remember going to Romania, and we had traveled. We had had traveled uh, from Dulles to Budapest, and it was a continuing trip from from Budapest, Hungary, over to through the customs border, and then all the way driving all the way over to Kapultanish, where we were at, and that was another 11 hour ride. And so we were on the road, I think I figured up somewhere around somewhere north of 30 hours, if I'm not mistaken. It was a long trip. The van was cold, it was the winter time. Uh, that last leg, and that's Clayton was just a a baby. Anyways, what impressed me that what's still in my mind there is we got into our new house, and it was just a tiny little apartment one a bed, a uh, one bedroom, a living room, and a and a little kitchenette. But there was a terracotta stove there on the side, and it was just roaring with you know fire, and and uh, it was just it was warm in the house. And there was also a thing of stew on the on the stove for us. And, uh, you know, such a welcome after all those hours of travel and that cold. Well, that's not what these people came back to. They came back to, remember, um, ruins. Their houses gone. Even the land that was theirs, they were entitled to, they had to go through legal means probably to reclaim it. There's probably squatters on it. And if there was anything of value left there, people had taken possession of it. There was chaos. Runes and so forth, and so you know that was something else these people had faced. There was this king's tribute to pay. It seemed like that was a pretty heavy burden for them, um, and they had to they had to take out loans from for that to pay the king's tribute. Uh, there, these folks were in a dire strait, and now the nobles were exacting this excessive usury or this ex- excessive uh, interest. And basically what they were doing is turning their fellow citizens, fellow Hebrew citizens into a servant class. And it was you know in direct contrast what to what the Hebrew law, the tenor of the Hebrew law was. They're not supposed to do such a thing to turn their own brethren into to slaves and servants. Um so here they are. Saying that our flesh is, is the flesh of our brethren, our children is theirs. And uh, we're being brought into bondage, our sons and our daughters. We don't have a way out. It's a dead end. This hope we had <clears throat> of leaving Babylon and, and coming back, and this hope we had of rebuilding, this hope that we had for a future for our people, it's gone. It's, it's no more. And what are we going to do? And there was an outcry. Nehemiah's response was very direct. And, uh, well, he says this, I was angry. I heard their cry in these words. I consulted with myself. And he says, then he went on to rebuke the nobles and the rulers. He set against them a great assembly, it says. And I have to wonder, You know, how great of assembly was this? Was this 20 people? Was this 300 people? Was this 3,000 people? Was this, you know, a Charlottesville demonstration? I don't know. But whatever it was, the number of people combined with the, the logical explanation of the people's charge that Nehemiah presented had the effect of shaking the foundations of the nobles' confidence. And they backed up. Nehemiah gives him his own words, you know, what he did. He says, he and his and those of of his own says, We with what we had, we redeemed our people, our brethren, which were sold into the heathen. And now, will you in turn sell your own people? And it says, The nobles held their peace. They found nothing to answer. He goes on to exhort them are you not to walk in the fear of God because you know you have enemies out here that are looking on And he goes on to let them know that you know he in his own right could could exact money of the of of the people You know to me this as I was reading this it was and I didn't look at, go back and look at the context so I'm going from memory here and it refreshed myself but it just reminded me of President Reagan saying Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, this people. Remember, if if you look at the context, a wall going right through the right through the city of Berlin, and uh, from there you had East Germany and then West Germany, and of course the Russians occupied or communists occupied East Germany, and and then uh, and then West Germany was freed. Um, and it just seems you know like such a tragedy there that that this people was divided like that, and mr President Reagan tells Mr. Gorbachev, you know clearly tear down this wall, and I think it was the same sort of um fortitude and 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 power that Nehemiah gives in his day, telling the nobles, just lay off that usury, lay off that that interest um don't be don't be um making servants of your own people, and then he tells them this: restore in in verse eleven restore I pray you to them, even this day, their lands and their vineyards and when you think of restore, when we think of that, we need to be thinking of restock, fill those shelves back up, put these things into place again, restore, I pray to them even to stay their lands, their vineyards, and their olive yards and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money. He doesn't just tell them to, you know, lay off, leave them alone. He says, give back. Help them out. Help bring them back up again. These are your people. These are your brothers. Um, Make them your own again. Restore. And the nobles respond, I think, well. Then they said, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So we will do as thou sayest. And so, Nehemiah calls a priest in. You might say he got this notarized. He calls a priest in. He takes an oath. And he makes sure that this goes down into the record. And... um, it says the people did according to this promise. So it's not just a promise that uh, was promised that you can maybe or may not take to the bank, but this they did according to the, what they promised. And this was recorded. This is quite remarkable to me as I read this, this passage. These people, these nobles, were they were called uh, for their lack of compassion. They responded, they did, and they restored. Um, And then you have Nehemiah's personal example. Well, I'd like to think a bit more than how do we make this personal to us. When I read this passage, what came to my mind was usury. Then there was justice and then compassion. Compassion. Or mercy, and this morning I'd like to focus on mercy. It ends up with mercy, I believe. And I'd like to look at our merciful Lord, um, compassion coming from Nehemiah to his people, and then there was a sense of mercy on the part of the nobles in, in forgiving the debts of those indebted to them. Now, you know, this could be a bit dubious depending how you look at it, but. Uh, they did respond. They did what they, what they said they would do. Um, but there's a, a mercy that's far greater than even the nobles or Nehemiah. And that's the mercy of God towards usward. Micah Micah 6, 6.6 says this, 6-8. through 8, And this is a familiar passage. One I find fascinating though. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? You know, shall I bring what I've got, what's available to me? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Will the Lord be pleased with much more than I have? Will the Lord be Or shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then this just beautiful verse: "He hath show thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God." Nehemiah was a just man. He intervened for his people. He worked justly and for that He should be admired. But how much more our Lord? Psalm 103.10 says this, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so much higher than we could ever reach, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. And then Romans five. 6-8, 6-8, for when we were yet without strength, completely helpless, and I had a message on this uh, the other Sunday evening, how that, you know, we were completely undone. We are without God. Completely undone, completely in rebellion. At that point of time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this morning I'm going to I want to share a story about Christ dying for a man. Um, and about Christ's grace towards a man that's a little more current, a little more uh, in our day and age. I don't have all the context for this story. It's its uh, out of the book, The Case for Grace by Lee Strobel. Um, I did some quick research. I, I wish I had a better understanding of the whole situation. But it, the, the setting is in Cambodia. And the title of the story is the executioner." i 'm going just to go through there and give some give some uh detail from this, but there was a man his name was Lapel who was actually a boy, born into a, a priestly family of of um, of the of the Buddhist uh religion and um as, as a young boy, um, his brothers or his siblings had, had gods that they would play with. They had gods that were special to them. That they would have craftsmen make. His father was a priest and served um, the prince Norodom Sihanouk. Uh, now this was a leader there in Cambodia before the uh, Khmer Rouge Revolution. And there was something, there was something about um uh, when when Lapel was offered, when the when these craftsmen offered to make him something, um, uh, for some reason, and he says he doesn't know why, he asked them to make him a cross. Um he said maybe he saw it in a Catholic cathedral, he doesn't know. And um he he wore he ended up wearing that cross. His father was upset when he saw it, but he wouldn't give it up. And it wasn't so much later uh, that Lapel's family was taken into um, in out with the rest of the learned people. Remember, that if if you're familiar with the Cambodia, with that Khmer Rouge um, revolution, they were trying to get rid of all the elite class, all the schooled class all the doctors, um, and so forth. They wanted only an agrarian, an agrarian state. And uh, so, in uh, the religious class as well, they were getting rid of. At some point, this cross saved Lapel's life. He was, he was taken. He was forced to work 14, 16-hour days in, uh, in the rice fields, he got a high fever, and uh, I, I take it he was maybe 14 at the time or so. He was brought into, uh, he was brought into uh, like a little medical center, although they didn't have medicines. And um, it says the soldiers when, when they were checking him out saw this cross, and there was just a heavy silence descended on them on everyone. And he said it was just quiet for a time, and he thought, okay, now's my time to go out in the woods and never come back again. And at some point, all of a sudden they said, Oh, he's going to be okay. And buttoned him back up, left the cross on him, and and gave him the best medical attention that they could give him. And his life, which was very little, but his life was saved. And um Lapel went on to become a Christian. And there's some you can buy the book and read this, I recommend you do. Um, he went on to become a Christian and then returned to Cambodia in 94, 1994. Um, during that Khmer Rouge, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, Khmer Rouge period of ethnic cleansing. It's estimated that 1.5 to 2 million people were killed or destroyed, and that was out of a, of a pop, that was out of a population of about 8 million people. So, one out of five people died during that time, and that was between uh, 75 and 79, I think. So back, going forward to 94 now, 1994, Lapel goes back as a missionary and starts up a, a Christ-discipling uh, work. And he's working with, with a lot of people, uh, with, with Christians there, young Christians there, helping them to become established and then sending them out to, to start churches of their own. Now, as a shifting just a little bit here, whole family died. Uh, his sister, who was a broadcaster in the capital city, was killed. His brother was killed shortly before the Vietnamese intervened in 1979. He had a cousin who was killed in this. Um, um, who was a scientist and she taught at school and she was taken to what they called the S-21 uh, prison. And in that S-21 prison, if my memory serves me, serves me correctly, 15,000 went in, and only seven came out alive. Um, it was the most notorious prison uh, in Cambodia and maybe in history, and in recent history there. It was a for this prison was a former tool Sve Prey High School just outside the Nome Pen. The compound had four three story buildings all facing a grass courtyard and a wooden administrative building in nineteen seventy six the Camura ruse uh it was this was in nineteen seventy six all the way through seventy nine and this is what it says about these are some of the things that happened there sometimes they asked twenty one torturers would compel confessions by hanging prisoners upside down. And this is where his cousin died, uh, Lapel's cousin died. Their head in a bucket of urine and feces, other times electric shock, suffocation with plastic bags, or beatings with electric cords were used. To save on bullets, throats were slit, heads were bashed with a shovel, or necks were broken with a hoe. Babies were killed by dropping them from balconies or swinging them by their legs and smashing their heads against trees. I weep when I think of what happened to her, LaPelle says about his cousin. S21 is now a genocide museum, and I looked at that online. It's it's a museum, and along its walls are just hundreds of mug shots of prisoners on the walls. And they didn't even clean the walls. The walls are still blood-stained. During its reign of terror, more than 14,000 prisoners entered S21. Only seven are known... I was off a thousand. Only seven are known to have survived. Lapel's cousin and her boyfriend were among those buried in shallow gra- graves. Lapel, as he's being interviewed, blinks away tears. We found the picture of my cousin. But his body language is clear, he didn't want to say anything more about it. Now moving ahead, Lapel has this, it's a 94, maybe 95. They've got these um discipleship classes going. And I'll read a section of story here. A Life Transformed. In 1994, 15 years after the demise of the Popo regime, Lapel and a team from his congregation bought farmland and built a church in the Battambang province in northwestern Cambodia. The following year, he returned for two weeks to conduct leadership training among 100 local Christians. One of his key leaders invited a friend, Hang Pin, who was a teacher in a village not far away. Hang was in his mid-50s and scrawny. His most distinguishing physical characteristics were his ears that stuck out. He spoke Thai and some English and had taught the Khmer language for for a while at the Foreign Languages Institute in Beijing, China. Although he wasn't a Christian, Hang agreed to attend Lapel's training because he was suffering from deepening depression, and was looking for encouragement. Invaders had broken into his house and ordered his family on the floor. His wife, Rome, was bayoneted to death, and Hang was stabbed in the back, a traditional Khmer ruse punishment for betrayal. He recovered, sold everything he owned, and moved to teach at a college at the Sveshek district. It says he was shy, quiet, and very withdrawn and discouraged. At the end of one of the classes, Lapel was surprised to see that uh, Hang had joined several others in stepping forward. He said to him, Do you want me to pray for you? And Lapel told him um, that he did. He wanted to be prayed for. And he said this and Hang told Lapel this. He said, I've done a lot of bad things in life. I don't know if my brothers and sisters can forgive the sins I've committed. And, it, and Lapel says he was sorry he was remorseful. Lapel was more concerned about the present. you know was this man repentant? Did he understand forgiveness as a gift of god's grace and it was apparent he did, and so Lapel assured him that God loves him and that he can forgive him, and he says, "I prayed with him, and the next day I baptized him in the sink." River and rarely have I seen such an immediate transformation in anyone. His attitude, his demeanor, everything changed. Now he was sitting in the front row. He was dressed more neatly. He was excited. He would ask questions and interact with enthusiasm. He couldn't get enough teaching. He was the most attentive of all the students. He took meticulous notes and goes on to say other things that he did in his Bible study and, and learning about God. Two years later, the same hang was uprooted by military violence in his area. He ended up in a Ban men, another camp, where 12,000 refugees were inside of Thailand. There he began to serve with the American Refuge Committee, training health workers and saving countless lives by helping to stem a typhoid outbreak. An American Red Cross official called him our best worker. I'm sorry, American Re- Refugee Committee, called him the best worker. Highly respected in the community, clearly very intelligent and dedicated to helping refugees. A journalist described him as a humanitarian. And then there's the next section. It's a call that changed everything. A caller identified himself as a reporter for the Associated Press. Calls up Lapel. Can you help us identify one of your disciples, he asked. One of my disciples, replied Lapel, many people have come through my training. The reporter described this individual, not very tall, skinny, his ears sticking out. Yes, I know him, said Lapel. Hang pin, he's one of our lay pastors. Well, he's a hardline Khmer ruse, said the reporter. Lapel's mouth dropped open. What do you mean? So this same I'll keep on going. He was one of the top Kamara He's a killer, a mass murderer. He was in charge of S-21, that notorious prison. Hangpin is comrade dude. LaPelle felt his knees and slapped his forehead. His mind raced from his murdered cousin to the S-21 museum to baptizing Hangpin. Is this possible? How can this be? Slowly the story emerged. Photojournalists Nick had tracked down Duke in his jungle village and then an investigator reporter, Nate Thayer, who had previously questioned Paul Pote, which would have been the leader of the Kimmer confronted Duke about his identity. At first, Duke was evasive, but then quickly he began admitting his past. It's God's will, you are here, Duke said. Now my future is in God's hands. I have done very bad things in my life. Now it's time for... Less reposees to bear the consequences of my actions. Dunlop and Thayer showed Duke copies of the documents he had signed them to authorize executions. Even for a jaded foreign correspondent like Thayer, it seemed like Duke was genuinely remorseful. I am so sorry. The people who died were very were good people. Duke said, tears in his eyes. The first half of my life, I thought God was very bad that only bad men pray to God. My fault is that I didn't serve God, I served men. I served communism. I feel very sorry about the killings in the past. I wanted to be a good communist. Now he said he had a new goal. I want to tell everyone about the gospel. Du readily confessed to his crimes and said he would testify against other Kumar officials so that they too could be brought to justice. Anticipating his own arrest and imprisonment, Du said, it is okay, they have my body, Jesus has my soul. It is important that this history be understood. I want to tell you everything clearly. And said Thayer, the journalist, he did. At one point, well, I'll just read his testimony. Part of his testimony to the UN Council was I'm responsible for the crimes committed at S21 especially the torture and execution of the people there. May I be permitted to apologize to the survivors of the regime and the families of the victims who had loved ones who died brutally at S21. At one point with his consent, Du was taken in handcuffs back to the blood-splattered S21 to face his accusers. He collapsed in tears saying, I ask you for your forgiveness. I know that you cannot forgive me, but I ask you leave me that hope that you might exclaimed one of the few S-21 survivors. Here are the words that I've longed to hear for 30 years. Dude was convicted and is locked in prison and known pen for the rest of his life. And that ruling is final. And so he is most likely there today. Lee Strobel goes on to say then talking about breaking the cycle and he talks about the Buddhist and how they responded to... Hearing about deuce capture and imprisonment and his conversion to Christ, especially, and one journalist was she was asking a a Buddhist monk or several about his conversion, and they said, he has become a Christian to earn points um, and they predicted that he would return into the next life in a form reflecting the depth of his de- deprav- depravity asked what form. This monk said he would be a bug. <clears throat> I recounted that anecdote to Lapel, who is this pastor. To a lot of people he said, LaPelle says that would seem like a better picture of justice given the brutality of Deuce's crimes. But then I would like to read this and I'd like to focus on this and, and what it really means to us thinking of grace. So, you know, Duke coming back into the next life as a bug, that would be a little better form of justice, right? But it wouldn't be grace. And this is what Lapel says, but grace is not fair. And everyone should be grateful for that. Not just Duke. If God were to deny Duke grace by drawing a line and saying, no more, then who's to say where that line might be drawn the next time? And that gives me pause when I think about that. So if God would draw a line here and say, okay, you know, you've killed 30 people. I can forgive this. But beyond 30, I can't forgive. Who's to say where God might draw the line next time? Might He draw the line when I exhibit pride? Or when I tell a lie? Or when I uh, don't treat my fellow men like I should? Would God draw the line there? Do you understand what he's saying here? it's It's a pretty profound thought in my mind. So grace is, you know, it's just freely given to those who call out for it. And that's an amazing thing. Jesus' death has infinite value because He's an infinite God. It was enough to cover all the sins of the world. If we say some sin is too terrible, then we're saying Jesus fell short in His mission. Grace is only available. Grace is only grace if it's available even to the deuce of the world. In fact, he said, straightening himself in his chair, "Here is a difficult thing for us to comprehend. God loves deuce just as much as He loves you and He loves me." Lee Strobel says, "I allowed myself to feel the full impact of that statement. That is hard to understand." Lapell continued, "The truth is that God looked." beneath the filth that covered Deuce's life and saw a core that he had made in his image. And that image is obscured, but it's never destroyed. When the Bible says God loves the world, it doesn't give a footnote of any exceptions. God's grace is inexhaustible. That's pretty amazing. So do so. It says, you know, there's this there's this image of God, and it can be covered with filth. It can be covered with so many things, and yet there's this image of God that, if God, if it's allowed to be brought into the grace of God, will flourish. Will have communion with God again. God's grace is inexhaustible. And we should be so thankful for that because that grace is for you and for I here this morning. And that's mercy in my mind. That's mercy that God freely extends to us. Today, dude who's in prison, uh, Lapel still visits him, goes there um, every time he goes to Cambodia, which is quite often... Has communion with him. He's one of the few people that can see Duke in prison. And Duke's uh, testimony is that he loves God and that he's so thankful he made that decision. Just a couple of thoughts that came to my mind. Without mercy, without the mercy of Christ, there would be no seeking the one lost sheep and bringing him into the fold. As we read about Matthew 18:10 through 12, without mercy there would be no father looking with longing, with longing down the road for the return of the prodigal son. As we read about Luke 15:11 through 32, without mercy there would be no forgiveness of our so large a debt that we could never be in a position to repay. And without mercy we wouldn't have the ability to forgive the debts of others. Even like Lapel forgave this man Du, who had so badly misused, taken the lives of so many of his fellow men, including his own cousin. Like we read about Matthew eighteen, twenty-one through thirty-five. Without mercy we'd be destined to an eternity that would make a bug's life look like heaven in comparison. You know, when I, when I think of um the Buddha saying that a man would come back in a bug form, to me that that doesn't, that's not justice for due. You know, a bug, that's way too good of a life. Um And that's not justice. That's not the kind of justice that God talks about. He talks about hell. He talks about a place where there's eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal torment. That's justice. But God is gracious. He is kind. And He gives us that that ability to reach out to Him, to find His love, to find His mercy, and be part of that. Few verses out of first John here. Beloved, let us love one another. Chapter four for love is of God, and everyone that loveth God loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Beloved, if God so love us, we also ought to love one another. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him, God, because he first loved us. And this is the commandment we have from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. And that's, you know, I guess, as I was reading this passage out of Nehemiah and was looking at that uh, compassionate Nehemiah toward his people and that uh, feeling of, when you think of compassion, it's, the, uh, it's that, that word of, of, of feeling their, their pain, actually, and, and going through what they go through. And I had to think, you know, isn't that what God has done for us? And then this story came to my mind here of, of uh, Lapel and Duke Comrade do and and moreover of of you know just god's graciousness to to us it's beyond anything we could describe um but it's there it's there for us and um, it should be it should be our i think um compelling encouragement uh, as we as we move ahead in our Christian life. May God bless you. And uh, may we be a people that are truly thankful for the grace God extends to us.